Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. Welcome to the podcast, conscience that made us. Interviews and stories, tales from the bus. We love taking you back to when it all went down. The greatest live shows and that cheering crowd sound. It's concerts, concerts that made us, concerts that made us.com. On this episode, I'm chatting with Todd McCarthy. When it comes to the music industry, Todd has really done it all, from being a performer all the way up to being a vice president at Sony Music. This is a hugely interesting conversation. Now there is a segment where Todd speaks about the peaceful quality of life living in Japan. I have to let you know this episode was recorded before the tragic assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, which was an incredibly rare and unusual occurrence in Japan. We also talk about Band Builder Academy, which Todd created to help musicians navigate the music industry. And in my opinion, it's something that every musician needs to have at their disposal. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Todd McCarthy, it's absolutely fantastic to have you here at Concerts That Made Us. Hey, Brian. Nice to meet you, man. I've been looking forward to this. Pumped up. Let's do it. It's great to meet you, too. Great to meet you. Now, we might as well jump straight into it. You've been a drummer, a taxi driver, a tour manager, promoter, record label general manager, and you were a vice president at Sony Music. First of all, why ain't I sitting in front of some like 70-year-old dude who's retired now? You know, you're pretty young to have achieved so much. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. It's the 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 people that got in my taxi cab when I was like 22 or 23 said the same thing. They're like, aren't you a little young to be a taxi cab driver? And I was just fresh out of school. And um, I guess, I, I don't know, I started music early. Like I was already playing in punk rock bands and booking shows and a little bit of tours in high school. And I think and even as young as 15. So I got into it very young and I was a record label general manager probably at age 26 and, you know, doing some, you know, meetings with, with, you know, 70 year old guys and suits, you know, and I was 26 and they were looking at me like, what the hell am I sitting across the table from a, from a kid, you know, like, so, you know, but yeah. So I've always been, I guess I've always been young in the business. You've definitely had a, a wild life so far anyway, but we'll, we'll start at the very beginning. Is there a seminal point in your early life that you can point at and say, that's what made me want to work in the music business? Ooh, yeah. So I guess, yeah, at at first it wasn't music business. I wanted to be a drummer. I was a musician first. So it was like parades, going to parades and hearing the drum lines and how powerful it was. It hit you in the chest. So I fell in love with music from that. And just had musical family, like lots of big brothers and sisters. I'm a fan, a youngest of five. So lots of music in the house. Um, it was, I was, you know, raised in the 80s. I'm 46 years old. Um, but I think 
the business part happened when, yeah, like there was this band in Washington, D.C., my hometown, Washington, D.C. Um, there's this band called Fugazi. And before that, they were called, they were in a band called Minor Threat. And they had a record label called Discord Records, still have a record label. And they were in my hometown signing artists and putting out vinyl records and, and CDs and stuff in the 80s. Um, and doing it all themselves with no like major distribution or anything, just hand to hand at shows, they'd get them in the record stores. And I was like, Oh, you don't need to be on Sony or Warner or universal or BMG to be like a rock star, you know, and they were packing rooms of 2000, 3000 people in big venues and selling hundreds of thousands of albums from their little, you know, warehouse records, you know, how it was actually a house in Washington, DC <laughs> where the label was. So that made me want to do what they did. So I think discord records was the first moment I was like, I want to do the music business. And I was probably 12, 13 at the time. <laughs> Jeez. So they were actually doing what most bands are doing nowadays, but back in the eighties, that's, that's right. crazy to that's think right. of. Yeah. yeah. They were, uh, if only other bands knew that that was the way it was going to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I pressed my first vinyl record my sophomore year of high school. So I don't know, I was probably 15, 16 years old. Um, and I was working at a print shop actually, and did we printed the jackets and um, just sent off for the vinyl records. But yeah, so I started young too. And that dream was right there. I didn't, I didn't wait for anybody to sort of come to me. It was like, well, these guys did the music business right out of their house and did it really big and, and well, hmm. probably have sold a few million records from their little label. And um, if they could do it, then, you know, us kids could do it too. So that's what we did. Yeah. And what, what steps did you take then to becoming a, a drummer, forming your own band? Yeah, that was just um, probably like finding the dude in elementary school or middle school that looked like, the, you know, the, the, the kid that might play guitar and <laughs> happened to be this kid, Richard work, never forget him. He, he had long hair. He was the only kid in elementary school with long hair. He was a skateboarder and uh, he played guitar. I asked, and he played guitar. So we started and we did, we we're doing like Metallica covers and just like ACDC covers, the easy stuff. And met, you know, that was it. Like we just did those covers in my basement and um I think that was, we, we, we had a name, uh, it was anathema, which has now become a big metal band. Um, but we were the first in 1982 <laughs> or something. Um, but yeah. And then it was just putting together, together garage bands. That's what it was. And, um, but first booking shows and sophomore year of, of high school was probably when I started booking shows and calling radio stations and writing, you know, writing, um, getting the, newspapers and local magazines to do write-ups on our shows and concert previews and really learning the music business at a very young age. <laughs> uh, very DIY as well, it seems, you know, like most people would study in college for a couple of years to learn all that. But you as a, as a teenager just took to it like a fish in water, you know, you just yeah, start doing it, it yourself. It was very DIY. And what's funny about that is from 15 to 22 i didn't learn much more <laughs> it was all like basic diy promotion book and we were booking concerts ourselves and all this stuff and we did it all ourselves and didn't really ever question how the majors or bigger labels did it we were just like well this works why do it differently 
Um, but it wasn't until probably three years into my label career at Fearless Records when we had a platinum record go number one, like a number one radio song in like 12, 13 countries by Plain White Tees. The song was Hey There, Delilah. And to that point, our biggest hit was At The Drive-In, um, awesome rock band on the label. But that was that was like maybe 300,000, 400,000 records. I'm talking like number one in 14 countries with Plain, Plain White Tees or something. So I had to learn the major label, big boy record business when that happened and I was still running on DIY fumes up until that. <laughs> that must have been a really scary time. You know, something great is happening, but also you're being launched onto another level that you haven't done before. Yes. Yes. No, I, I had to take a call from then the then CEO of Warner music to, you know, deal with an issue with our song, a global issue that was really critical to it. And uh, yeah, and I was 26, 27 and very green yeah. talking to one of the most powerful guys in the business over something. So I'll never forget that. Jeez. And back in them days, was it always in your mind, you know, that you were going to become as powerful as him or you were going to go that far in the music industry? Did you have a clear, concise plan laid out for yourself? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't have a clear, concise plan. Um, and I didn't make it as far as, as the CEO of Warner. Um, but you know, I made it to the senior vice president label at Sony music. Um, and, uh, I was the GM of the record label fearless records that I worked the longest for, for 13 years, um, and calling the shots. And, 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 and that was, that was to me the highest, the highest, because, you know, I was running a record label and we had platinum selling artists on it and we were competing with the majors uh, in, in some terms. So um, that that was good. But I didn't have a plan. It was it was a little bit of luck, a lot of hard work and, and elbow grease and getting in the trenches and fighting for our artists. And that was it. It was always like, who who are the who are the artists on the label at the, at, that need our attention right at this moment? So we could kind of seize the moment, seize that momentum and that energy. And, and it was always just like head down looking at that. There wasn't a lot of planning, um, towards the end of my term at fearless. Um, we had sold the company to new owners and, um, I gave that a shot, but I was looking to get, to do something different. And that, that was when I was like, Hmm, you know, I've been doing the DIY and independent record label thing for 15, 16 years now. I wonder what it's like to work at a major. I was always curious. So luckily I, I didn't seek them out. Actually, it just happened that somebody from Sony recruited me at the, at that time when I was thinking about that and I took the call and I'm glad I took the call and it was a good experience um, working for Sony. And they offered me a you know, senior vice president role was awesome. And uh, I worked for their rock group, which was uh, century media, which was the metal label inside out, which was the, Prague progressive rock label. And I, I looked after their newer alternative label too, that did like lovely, the band and, um, the unlikely candidates and some really cool iron Tom, some really cool rock alternative bands. Um, lovely, the bands, another one ended up, you know, multi, multi platinum, probably 10, 15 countries, number one as well. 
I'd probably be killed now if I didn't ask, but working behind the scenes in the music industry for labels, is it as cool and as fun as outside people would think it is? Definitely. It is. It's a lot of fun. It's really, um, it's, you know, sometimes it's awful, like any job, like there's bad days, but it's mostly fun. And, um, you know, dealing with music all day. I, I couldn't think of doing anything else. I still deal with music. I probably listen to more music now than I did when I was at a label, but lots of shows, you know, four shows a week, three shows a week. Um, you know, you're, you just live in and breathe. It was a good, it was a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to ask, I imagine it would be a lot of concerts and I imagine it's a scenario where you can go to any concert you want. Even if you heard about it today, it's on tonight, you could make a phone call and you're there. You know, that sounds like for me anyway, that would be the dream job. Just any concert you can go to, you know? Yeah, I, it is kind of like that. I mean, it, you know, the tickets aren't free, so, you know, you should offer to pay, but usually they'll, usually they'll just comp you and, and, and stuff. But um, we do, and we do the same for anybody else that called. There was a lot of trades going on. I imagine you'd actually, uh, you'd probably take the title for the podcast of being to the most concerts, then you've probably been to thousands. Have you? I don't know about 2000, but definitely. I think I was, I was trying to count it when you were like the concerts that made us. And I mean, first of all, you got to understand I was a musician, probably play, played 250, 300 shows as, as an artist. And then as a drummer, and then um, I was a tour manager and for two and a half years and probably did, 300 shows in that time. So that's 600, 700. And then, you know, just the shows that I went to. And when I was, I booked a venue in Orlando, Florida for a while, a coffee house. And, you know, we're booking shows. I mean, between the shows I booked, played at and went to, it was sometimes like four or five nights a week. I was in a club. So I mean, I think there's probably like from age 15 to 23 i mean there must have been a thousand concerts there and then you know as a, as a tour like yeah and then after that it was just going to concerts maybe two times a week but every week for for 15 years or something you know so that, that probably 1500 maybe 2000 shows i don't know i lost count oh man i have a very tough question for you so which uh -oh. ones stand out do any of them stand out ah yeah. Now the ones that I was actually at, because hmm. I mean, the biggest, the biggest concert for me, like life-changing, if I had, you know, if it was one concert, it was the Live Aid concert when I was like eight or nine on TV. I mean, that just hit me. I mean, I think it hit everybody, but you know, um, on that, on that show, it was like Queen, The Who, David Bowie, Phil Collins, U2, Black Sabbath. Um, there was the whole, you know, we are the world thing. It was just huge, but um, I wasn't at that show. So if it was the one I was at, my favorite show was this artist I mentioned earlier, Fugazi from my hometown, but I was outside of Washington, DC. I, I lived in Orlando, Florida for 10 years. And when I was in high school, probably 16, 17, I had this, this crazy idea. I wanted to see Fugazi play because when I was in DC living there in middle school, I actually didn't get to see them. But when I was in high school, I was in Orlando. So I bought a ticket, 
found out about a concert. They were going to do it outside underneath the Washington Monument, the like needle looking monument in D.C. Yeah. And they had a stage there. And I was like, I am not going to miss that. So I bought a plane ticket just myself, went up there, flew up there, got off the plane at the airport, somehow figured out how to get over to the mall uh, where the monument was. There was no security at the concert. Like it was just the stage. I, you know, I walked right up on the stage. So I was like side stage and I'm seeing like all the crew and the band. This is one of my favorite bands and I didn't know them or anything, but I was right there in it. And then they filmed the concert and like, I'm on the side of the stage and there's photos from that show. There's photos from that fame. It's a famous Fugazi show. And yeah, it was awesome. It was just my favorite show. Um, I'd imagine. <laughs> I did a fly out, uh, maybe like my senior year in high school. Hmm. Um, so probably 17. Another thing I, there was this band sunny day real estate that I loved, but they were from Seattle and I was in Orlando, Florida. So it's like 3000 miles. So I did the same thing. I jumped on the plane, went out to see them. I didn't know Seattle. I just got in a taxi cab from the airport, say, take me to downtown. And then I bought a ticket saw sunny day real estate and Joan Jett played the same, the same night. Um, so that was kind of cool, but I didn't know any of the other artists on the, on the festival it was basically just a 3000 miles on a plane ticket <laughs> just to go see that one band. So that was really memorable. Yeah. I've often wondered about people who go to concerts on their own. I've, I've often like toyed with the idea of doing myself what I enjoy it, but I don't know, like I'm 34. And I feel like I'd have a bit of fear about it. You were 17 and hopping on a plane, flying cross country on your own and going to a gig. You must have been a, a pretty ballsy teenager. I guess so. I, I don't know where that came from. I'm, I mean, yeah, don't know. I just uh, I just had the just had to do it. I wasn't going to miss it. I think it comes from when I was like seven or eight we were at the beach. The whole family was at the beach and I had four older siblings and every one of them got police was in town, the police on their synchronicity tour. Yeah. And I really loved Stuart Copeland's drumming. I loved the police. I wanted to be there, but I was too young and my mom wouldn't let me go. No, there's going to be marijuana there. You know, like, <laughs> so I granted, I probably wouldn't have let my kid, maybe I would, but, um, but I didn't get to go. So I was really hurt from that. And I guess that's why my mom couldn't like say, no, you're not going to, you know, a thousand miles away or whatever. So she felt guilty about not letting me go to the police concert. Yeah. And so I got my way on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned you worked as a, a tour manager. Is this different going? Well, you're not going to concerts, you're working at concerts, but how different is it at that side of the concert from you know, just attending a concert as a, as a concert goer. So different. Yeah. It's, um, it's like the difference of like going to work and then going to, a, <laughs> you know, going to an amusement park. It would, yeah. you know, it, that's the difference. Although, I mean, going to a job that you love versus going to an amusement park, cause I loved the work. Um, but it was work. I mean, you saw the back of the venue, meaning like the dumpster, the, the loading dock, the brick wall and the smelly, you know, alley, you saw the back of the venue more than you saw the box office, the front of the venue, the inside of the venue. I mean, you're literally in 
a dark, dank, smelly environment <laughs> most of the time when you're touring. So it's definitely not like that. And most of my touring was club touring, not festival shows, although I did some of those too. But no, it's a lot of driving, a lot of um, calling, uh, you know, calling hotels ahead of time, calling the promoters, the, 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 the production managers and settling, you know, business with them beforehand, you know, if anything isn't ready or there's something goes wrong the day of the show, you got to be scrambling to get it. You're driving members to the guitar store, drum store to get gear that broke. You know, I don't know, you know, a lot of, you know, things happen while you're on the road. So you're just dealing with that. So it's a lot of, a lot of, um, it's a 24 seven job, little bit of sleep, not much. I, in those tours, a lot of times I was the driver um, other members of the band would drive too, but yeah, so it was, it was different. And then going to a concert is a lot of waiting around and sitting around and either being hot or too, too hot and like sweaty in the venue or just, you know, a lot of boredom, you know, I yeah. think, you know, just a lot of waiting around. And it's not like that when you're on the other side of it, it's hustle bustle the whole time. Oh, goal, goal, goal. Yep. Did you, uh, for the tour manager. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You must have some, uh, some crazy stories from that time though. Did you ever have to deal with any divas or any big egos or anything like that? Yeah. Um, no, no divas. Although, you know, I got to see some, uh, there was one, there was one, I, uh, there was a diva. I was out with a, uh, an artist called stereo lab from Europe. They're multi, some from UK, some from Germany. I think they have French members as yeah. French, the singer. Like, yes. But yeah, there's some divas on both the, the female side and the male side of that group. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a really interesting tour. Um, yeah. And, and uh, also that was around the time of 9-11. Right. Uh, so it was a really interesting time. And I was not the tour manager for Stereolab. I was the tour manager for the support act called Fugu, who was also a multinational group. Um, half the members from England, half the members from France. I think they had a German in the band. Um, but so imagine like, this is like a week or two after 9-11, they somehow got it. Yeah, it was maybe a week or two after, but we're traveling around in the middle of America in Iowa, cornfields, just nothing. <laughs> right. And we got pulled over and the police were like, okay, what? what the hell's going on? Like, why, why is your driver French? He doesn't speak English. <laughs> He's showing me a passport. Um, like, why are, do you have a German French? Like he was, he asked to see all of our IDs and you're the only American, like what's going on here. So he thought he had like a international terrorism thing on his hands. So <laughs> he got detained and luckily we worked away from it, but the same thing happened at the Canadian border. Right. So then we, we had to go into Vancouver, into Canada from Seattle, and the same thing happened. So we got stopped at the border. So that was kind of interesting um, times. Jeez. I suppose for the time it was, you can see their logic, though, a lot of different nationalities, you know, it would seem a bit unusual when uh, senses are heightened and security is so, so risky at that time, you know? Yep. Yep. No, it, it definitely was. We didn't argue. <laughs> it was pretty yeah pretty interesting but and um 
I feel like I'm flip-flopping through time now, but uh, back to your days of being a drummer, did you, did your band get much success? Not, not commercial success, but we didn't lose money. I mean, we made a little bit of money, but it was enough to like really enjoy what we were doing. We toured, you know, like we would book tours from Florida all the way to Chicago, just a good 1200, 1300 miles, um, you know, like a two, three week tour. We'd go up to the East coast, maybe 12 date tour up to, you know, Boston, New York, um, down the East coast. And, you know, we did get some songs in like local radio. We sold a few thousand uh, CDs at the time, which was decent, you know, made a little bit of dough from the CDs. Um, but no real commercial success. And we were just sort of written up in kind of like punk and rock zines and magazines and some, you know, early blog, early forms of blogs, but not nothing. Um, not, there was there was no chart chart success or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And was it a natural progression or did you have to make a tough decision then to, you know, leave that behind and go behind the scenes in the music industry? I did. I did it simultaneously for a while. So um, while I was uh, playing in bands, I was a tour manager for, you know, and, and, you know, playing in my own band, but being on the road six to eight months of the year was pretty hard to be in a band, but was still able to get the job done. Um, but no, no real success with those artists either. And then um, in 2002, I moved from Washington, D.C., well, before that, I lived in Florida. 2000 came up to D.C. 2002, I was in a band in D.C. at the time, but then I got a job in California at Fearless, took that job. And actually, the other two guys in the band in D.C. moved with me. We all three moved out, took our band out to California and did the band there um, and tried you know, for a while. But probably two years into that Fearless job, I had to kind of stop doing the band because I was just full-time fearless and I just couldn't, I couldn't yeah. tour, couldn't do anything about the music career anymore. So sort of put it away. I still kind of, you know, dabbled in it a little bit after that, but n with no intention of touring or releasing records. Just for fun, just for yourself just for more so. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people would be asking themselves, you were the GM of a record label. You had your own band. Could you not be like, here we'll uh, we'll make my band the success. Oh right, <laughs> yeah, interesting. Now, that's a good question. Like because, um, probably could have, but we weren't good enough. Right, right. Like, I mean, if I had to be my own A and R guy, <laughs> we didn't have the songs. You know, we didn't have, we didn't have the sort of um, proof of concept. We didn't have the fan base. Like we we weren't getting it done. So I guess I guess that's also says a little bit about my artist development skills. I couldn't <laughs> develop my own my own bands, but but truthfully, I learned a lot of that artist development stuff a little bit later on. You know, like um, like I said, I was sort of going on DIY fumes until we had that big that big hit and really had to sharpen our music marketing record label skills. Probably around two thousand six, two thousand seven, when Plain White Tees were breaking and, and taking off yeah yeah and were you the did the book stop with you when it came to bands you know if you liked a band could you make or break them you know on your label so to speak as far as signing them or developing and promoting them 
developing, promoting? Yeah, developing and promoting. I mean, for a while, yeah, that was that was what I led the the, the staff. You know, the the owner of the company and founder of the company at Fearless Records, Bob Becker. For the most part, he signed like eighty percent, ninety percent of the artists on the label. So he was the talent scout. He was the you know, he had some other people there too that were doing some sign signings as well over the years. Uh, but for the most part, he signed most of the artists. And then once he handed them off, yeah, it was my job. And then, you know, of course we had a team. I can't take credit for all of the artist development because we had, you know, head of marketing, we had product managers, we had, I mean, everybody contributed like gra- our graphic designer would contribute <laughs> to ideas. Our, you know, our, we had a publicist, we had, um, you know, interns, everything, everybody lent a hand and we expected you to be a marketing expert in the record business, no matter what your title was and what your job was. Um, everybody had to to lend a hand and, and do everything they could. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, those decisions did, did lie with me. Maybe this never happened now, but you know, did you ever come across a band that you had on the label, you were certain there were going to be the next best thing, but nothing seemed to work. Oh, another good question. Yeah, I mean, that actually happens a lot. You know, like over my time at Fearless between 2002 and, and there was already 30 bands on the label when I got there, but um, between 2002 and 2016, there was probably 70, 80 bands signed. And I mean, a good 50 of them, we really thought should have been huge, you know, like, so there was a lot of that, but um, yeah, for every at the drive-in Pierce the veil made a parade or, um, you know, sugar called or big successful band, there was probably seven or eight that just, just couldn't do it. But one in particular, there is a band called Somerset. Um, they're still together. They just re- recently reunited. They're a pop band, like, but they have some pop punk roots. Mm. But man, they had such good songs, and we we had them going up the charts at pop radio, and we got them on the big iHeart Radio Festival in Las Vegas. They did the like New Year's Ball dropping uh, on on in New York City and Manhattan, the big Red Apple dropping. They did all these big things, and it seemed like it was just gonna go. But it just didn't happen. There wasn't the magic. There wasn't that luck or that magic factor that it just didn't go. And uh, I really wish it did. And I hope that, you know, it could still happen. They're still together. So um, I hope it happens for them. Uh, They're a great group of people. And the whole team felt that way. Everybody was, that's another thing I'll say about that project is one of the few projects where everybody was working in lockstep from the radio guy, the, the marketing team, the 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 band the tour manager the the artist manager the booking agent everybody was just like really on on good footing and working well together and it just didn't work it's crazy how it can go that way though but um how much rope would you give the band you know before you have to say it's not working we would you then you know unsign them from the label or what what's the, the process no a lot of rope because um from an independent record label point of view, we don't, you know, do the major, major, huge advances like the major labels where they'll drop a million dollar advance or something or make a ridiculous amount of, you know, spend a lot of money on the marketing or 
photo shoot or music video or something. So um, we weren't laying out as much capital. So we had a lot more tolerance uh, to be patient. And also, I mean, we're working with young artists, developing artists, and it takes a good five years to develop a band. I mean, you might hear about these quick lightning in a bottle experiences, but everybody who works in the business will tell you those are few and far between. It doesn't happen that way. It's it's five, six, eight, ten years before artists get their break. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, at Fearless Records, we signed the artist Portugal the Man in probably 2002, 2003. Um, they didn't really break and have big number one songs until, what, four years ago, maybe? So, I mean, it took them like 10, 12 years to... Yeah really break you know um plain white tea same thing they were around for six or seven years um there's there's just most of the examples are, are like that um it takes takes good time so we had they got a lot of rope we didn't cut a lot of bands we had short deals to where those were artist friendly deals to where once they finished their record label they were free agents to go somewhere else an example of that would be like motionless and white where they had a three album deal as soon as the third record was um was finished they had the choice to either resign with us, made a fair offer, or they could go, you know, be free agents. And they did. They chose to go to uh, Roadrunner Records, and they had a very happy career there. And um, yeah, so like, uh, that's what I loved about the independent labels is it was very uh, patient, artist friendly, um, and you know, we win together, we lose together. And then when you went to Sony, I imagine it was much more cutthroat and almost probably like a different world, was it? Def, very different, but in a lot of ways, the same too, because so the obvious differences were the bureaucracy, you know, going from company of, um, you know, 25 people to 2,500 people. It's just, you know, way big, huge difference. Um, the, the, the big difference is the red tape and sort of being constrained by corporate rules and policies and, you know, you know, at the, the indies, it was more shoot first, ask questions later. At the majors, it was all clear, clear, clear. I mean, it really slowed business down, in my opinion. Um, and it's a, it's a disadvantage at the, at the labels. But I think aside from that, it's mostly a people, people thing. Like, who, who are the, who's the team? Like, how, how well does the team gel together? And I found no difference in the staff and the people at a major label versus an indie label, like they, they're just music lovers like, like us. And, you know, they, they, um, they're just as passionate. They have just as much good ideas and, and um, sometimes, you know, even more higher level ideas. They're not as scrappy as coming from the independent labels. Like they have more budget to work with. So money is more of a solution. Whereas at the independent label, you're scrappy and you're working with low budgets and, and, you know, you know how to promote for free. Uh, another thing somebody told me once is independent labels are really getting good at getting an artist from like one to 20 in their career. And then the major labels are good at going from 20 to a hundred, you know, and, and that's not to say that independent labels can't do it, you know, either all ourselves because we got many artists to a hundred and, you know, Adele, who is rightly one of the top selling artists of, of, of the century, uh, you know, she was on an independent label and, and before she was on RCA um, and they, you know, they got the most album sales of any artist in a decade or something, maybe a couple decades on an indie. So indies can go the whole way too. But um, yeah, I think 
there's good people at both and, and there can be some bad people at both types of labels too. So I just really think it comes down to the people and the way they work together and stability. I'll say that's something I didn't like about major labels, really? no stability, independent labels. Most of the staff you'll find at them have worked there for many, many, many years. There's low turnover, major labels. There's these big shakeups, new, new, Top level CEOs come in and they just clean house and they get rid of people. Don't like that. That was not good. I mean, I was out of there before that could happen to me. I was only at Sony for a year and a half. So, and I moved to Japan. So I, <laughs> I got out. But, but interestingly, what was really cool about my Sony experience is even after I had quit, they still needed some help. So when I was in Japan, um, they were really cool about it. They They let me work on a contract basis for them my first six months living here in Japan, which is really nice. Ah, not too bad. So, and another burning question I have for you as someone who's worked for labels for say the last 20 years, you know, and there's been a massive shift in the music industry and how music is made. Are labels or were labels afraid of the whole of streaming, well, not streaming, but afraid that so many people have access to make music themselves and put it out there? Did it scare the labels, even the indie labels? I don't think so. I, I, I was never threatened or, or scared by it. Um, sort of just saw it as a good thing. I mean, I can say that like, now a lot of people, you hear this like, this thing in every generation thinks that their music when they grew up was the best. You know, if you go back <laughs> yeah. to the 60s, those people will swear their music was the best. 70s, oh man, rock and roll, like, classic rock like that was the best every generation swears by that but what i can say is maybe the songwriting has not gotten better yet mm. arguable but the production quality and the sound quality of the recordings and the way to like get to good songwriting is so much easier you can learn younger and get past all of those hurdles at a young age like you can teach yourself music production pretty easily or video production or photography or any skill you can teach yeah. yourself so much younger now with all the resources that are out there so you're not fumbling the first you know five ten years of your career you're not fumbling around trying to learn things so quickly so the learning curve has gotten shorter and i think that's helped the music business and we get these demos from artists that are just fantastic they're ready to go you can you know you don't have to like re-record it it sounds so good you can just take it right from their demo out of their bedroom and release it you know, so um, that's happened a lot. A lot of the music you guys are hearing these days has come right off of a bedroom recording. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. I don't think they're threatened by it. I think it's just evolution. You know, yeah, it's good. Making their job easier. Probably why would it be threatened when it's, uh, you know, it's cutting down the work for them? Yeah. And, and I think it's public knowledge and maybe people don't know, but the record labels are making more money than they did. 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, the revenues keep going up. So they're not threatened. They're not feeling like the pinch <laughs> is happening. They are cutting staff and their overhead is getting cut, but, but they don't need the manpower that they used to, they used to need. So it, the business, the business model is doing just fine. Yeah. Yeah. And before we move on to what you're currently doing, I wanted to mention your series of punk goes you know, punk goes, punk oh, goes yeah. pop, or I absolutely love that. You know, I, 
I'm a big fan of when a rock or a punk group takes a pop song and makes it that bit more edgier and everything, you know, and there's loads of them, you know, there's punk goes rock, punk goes pop, as I said, what, how much hands-on experience did you have making that thing? Was it your creation? No, it was the the owner of the company, uh, Bob Becker at Fearless. It was his creation. Um, he did the first one in 2000. It was called Punk Goes Metal. And I don't think he ever really saw it as this big grand Punk Goes series in the beginning. He got I, like one band turned in a cover of like an Aussie cover or something like that. Um, I don't quote me, but I, I want to say it was like the Aquabats, the ska band or whatever. They wanted to do like a metal cover and they turn it in and then he's like i wonder if i can get some other bands to do it and and he did and put that first one out and it was really successful pretty quickly and then he did the second volume which was called punk goes pop which was the very first volume of punk goes pop and that one was you know hugely successful um and now i think they're up to like punk goes pop pop eight maybe and there's also like punk goes classic rock punk goes 80s punk goes 90s there's punk goes crunk which is like punk goes hip-hop um, there's there's a couple volumes of punk goes acoustic so yeah and it has some of the biggest punk bands doing all these these covers so i was involved from the marketing from very early from the, the second series punk goes pop that was the, the first record i worked at fearless records when i got there in 2002 uh-huh. And along with the first Play My Tease album, those two albums were the first I worked. And, um, but yeah, so I was involved in a lot of them. And um, from the contract side, like getting the contracts done with the artists to sort of like licensing and, and also just more of the marketing ideas and being in, you know, we had big marketing meetings and grand ideas for all those things, but it was a big team effort. I would say there was, you know, all, you know, 10, 15, 20 people over the years that left their stamp on that, that series. Yeah. When, when I came across it, it was, uh, do you guys have now that's what I call music over in the States? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was like that, but a punk version. I absolutely okay. loved it. You know, it was just a, it's a great anthology of harder covers or punkier covers, I suppose. Yeah. But, um, Japan. What is Japan like to live in? I've always wondered what that sort that side of the world is like. Yeah, it's just so everybody knows. I I moved here in 2017 from Los Angeles, um, quit my Sony job and, and moved moved over here to start my own business, um, which is Band Builder Academy. We'll get we'll probably get into a little bit, but um I always wanted to live in Japan since I met this Japanese band. So I mentioned an, a band earlier called Fugazi. who was like my first favorite band. There was a, the Japanese version of Fugazi called Eastern youth. And I fell in love with that band shortly after I discovered, you know, Fugazi and was a big you know fan of theirs and learned about Japanese music and culture from that band. I actually ended up being their tour manager in the States for like three of their U S tours with at the drive-in and cursive um murder city devils jimmy eat world we did some some dates with them oh. so i was the their tour manager eventually so i got to meet sort of like one of my favorite bands on the planet and um be in a tour van with them and then i'd go to japan and go to their shows over here so that's kind of how i got to know japan um i've come i came to japan between 2002 and 2017 i think i came to japan almost every year and for a while like red bull the energy drink 
they were funding some of my trips because I would do like this battle of the bands thing in Tokyo every year and Red Bull put it on and I would, they would have me be a judge. So I got to like judge a lot of these Japanese up and coming bands. Mm. It was awesome. I was getting to come over here frequently and uh, just loved it and was like always curious to live here. So when I had my grand idea to, you know, get, get out of the label business and get into the, uh, music industry education. I now educate musicians, artists, managers, and record labels on music marketing and promotion. Um, when I was, had that whole idea, I was like, I can do it anywhere from a, a laptop and an internet connection. So I could do it in Japan and I'm married to a Japanese. So the immigration wasn't a problem. Um, we have a daughter, uh, she's 10 now. And um, we moved her here when she was five to just, we actually were going to stay two years to get her language abilities going. Yeah. Um, but then the pandemic happened and we just decided, you know, we're going to stay. Um, and, and, and that was like, well, we'll go back when the pandemic's over, but of course it's, it's <laughs> ongoing. And we've just decided we love it here. It's a great place to live. It's not as expensive as everybody thinks it is. In some ways it's really cheap. Um, things that are expensive are like, well, land and like real estate, but um, like fruit, you know, but like, like fruit has to be imported. Anything that has to be imported is, is, is expensive. Yeah. Um, but everything else pretty cheap over here and the people are super friendly. There's no guns and I'm, I'm an American. So like pretty afraid of guns right now. And <laughs> it's very peaceful here. Um, and yeah, you know, I don't, I haven't been, you know, threatened or anything like that. And living in Los Angeles, it was, you know, you're always looking over your shoulder. Yeah. And, um, I'd imagine. Yeah. So it was, it's, it's a nice, easy, relaxing, peaceful life here. I love it. The schools are good for my daughter and um, it's kind of a dream. One of my things I can tick off, you know, that I've done, that I'm really glad I got to do. Yeah, I always had this image that it was, you know, super peaceful, super relaxing and just a really mellow way of life. You know that I imagine I could it's probably wrong to say, but I imagine depression rates in Japan are very low because it seems like a place that would be easy to be happy in, you know? Yeah, I think it's like anywhere in the world, like if you are determined to find peace and you know, um, Zen out or whatever, you can find that. And, you know, and then if, if, if you're just bent on climbing the, the society's ladder and, and chasing, um, material things, and, and, you know, you can do that here in Japan too, and run yourself into a, you know, a dead end, you know, like there is a, a, a high suicide rate here. There's something where people work themselves to death. Like that's a, there's a word for it. Right. Um, there's all of that depression with younger people because there's so much pressure to get good grades and get into good schools and all this stuff and get good test scores. So there's lots of that. And I don't like that part of it. So it's like any society where it's got their two sides to it, but, but I'm one that's looking for, you know, I'm, I'm looking for um, sort of a life balance, a good work-life balance and, and family and, and, and business and, and all of it. And also just some, you know, peace. So I'm, <laughs> I'm finding that and I'm not living in Tokyo. I'm outside where it's, you know, it's much quieter and there's mountains, uh, rivers, there's beaches, everything. So it's nice here. Oh, sounds beautiful. Sounds beautiful. And when it comes to music in Japan, you know, I always hear, you know, Western bands, they always tour like crazy in Japan. 
But what is the actual music scene in Japan like for Japanese bands? Ah, it's a great question. Um, I love to talk about it. Nobody ever asked me this, but uh, it's always been a mystery to me when I was outside of Japan. Um, and even like coming here and visiting and talking with Japanese artists, I, I thought I kind of understood it, but it was still a puzzle. But now that I've lived here for five years, I've really started to understand it. And unfortunately, the pandemic has kept concerts away. They're, they're sort of coming back at a trickle here. But um, there are so many interesting things, that, and it's very different. Than, than it is, you know, elsewhere. And um, I think some of the big differences are like, definitely the tickets are more expensive, like because space and real estate is an issue. So they have to, the venues in Tokyo have to charge $70 a ticket. That's, that's like the going rate. 50 is cheap, um, but some of them are 100, 150. Um, so artists make their money from touring, but it's not a very big country. It's maybe, I don't know, it's probably not too much different than the UK where, you know, your markets, you can't overplay, you know, so they can't play, they can't, in America, you could get away with playing 200 shows in a year, just in America easily. In Japan, you know, they can't, so they have to charge more that way too, but they make their money from the shows. They don't um, have big bills when they play club shows because they want to make all that money for themselves. So usually the show is great. Like you, you go early, like 7 p.m., and you're out of there by like 9.30 p.m. So you can go hit dinner after the show. So oh. your night is like, get 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 off work, get ready, go to the show, enjoy the music. And you don't have to sit through opening bands. You just watch the band <laughs> you're paying for. Now, there's usually one opener sometimes, but usually it's just a, a short show, two hours, two and a half hours. You're out of there. And then you go spill out from the venue into like a nice restaurant um, you know, if you drink, go out for some drinks after the show. So it's a really fun night. And whereas most elsewhere, you're waiting around in line at 7 p.m. Then you sit through three hours of opening acts and then you get to the band you're there for. And and then you're not out. You're out of there at like one o'clock, 1230 at night when the Predators are out. You got to run to your car so you don't get mugged. You know, yeah. so like that's my <laughs> my L.A. concert experience. Versus Japanese. I love that experience. First of all, that's, that's something people should know. And then um, there's this difference in music. Like people think Western bands are huge here. They're not. Um, really? You know, Lady Gaga is popular here um, because she's in the news and in the media. She's on TV sometimes. Um, Bruno Mars is popular here. But these days, uh, K-pop is on top. J-pop is, is up there with them. And then anime music. But those three genres are like 95% of what's popular. I mean, for the older generations, there's a there's a there's a traditional folk music called Anka or Anka. I'm I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but um, but international rock music and international pop music is very low, um, fortunately. Uh, <laughs> but when the when those artists do come over here, they're small, intimate shows, like 800 to a thousand capacity venues. And the fans that are at those shows go wild for them. So that's the experience the Western artists get when they come here. It's a sold out venue, maybe one, two nights sold out. And it's awesome. They love it. The fans are taking pictures of them and chasing them. It's like Beatlemania. So that's <laughs> why the, the foreign artists love coming over here and getting that crazy Japanese fan experience. And they do do it. Even for small bands that are playing a 200 capacity room, they get that Beatlemania experience. So it's on all levels. 
And then some foreign artists come over here for the big summer Sonic Fuji rock festivals, the big festivals. Um, and they get a really nice experience too. And those are massive crowds. Um, and that's where the small proportion of people that like foreign music in Japan, they go to those bigger festivals mostly Yeah, yeah. or the small club shows. Um, but those festivals have had fewer and fewer international acts now, like Summer Sonic and Fuji Rock are mostly populated by Asian artists, mostly Japanese. But like Fuji Rock started as sort of like a lookalike to, um, you know, Reading or Leeds or, or like Lollapalooza or something like that or Coachella in America. Like they were sort of like those festivals or in Australia, Big Day Out, those things. Yeah. But it's less of Fuji Rock now. And it's if I had to describe it, like there's like a Caribbean vibe going on with the music, like an, it's an Island nation, it's Island. So they, they really like the Caribbean Cuba, uh, Cuban, Afro, Cuban genre, the Polynesian, like Hawaiian Polynesian music, that type of indie rock coming out. There's like bands from like Taiwan and stuff that are coming over that sound like that. And then a lot of that type of almost like jam band type stuff going on at, at Fuji Rock and Summer Sonic now, which is really interesting to me um, that the, 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 the Japanese ear likes that doesn't like J-pop and K-pop and anime music. They tend to like that. I don't know. Very soulful island style music is sort of like influencing and it's less like, you know, big European and, and, and um, American and Australian rock bands. It's like yeah, a lot yeah. more of that stuff, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it is actually. I uh, I've never actually heard of that before. That type of music. It's interesting. I hadn't either. It's something I discovered here just when I moved here. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to try search some out and give it a listen. A bit of an impossible question now, but why do you think Japanese bands never make it past Japan? Really, the majority of them you never hear of them, you know, in the West. Hmm. I think for this, it's, it's, it's funny because there's still this, there's still this like idea that foreign artists are huge in Japan or like British artists are huge outside of, you know, like in other parts of the world. And it is true. Like some of the big pop stars are, but I, I guess I would say Japanese artists and Asian artists are not as popular and huge and successful in Europe and America as they are there because they're not here either. Like Japanese, the most popular artists are Japanese and Korean and, you know, Asian, like that's what they're listening to. So I think that um, it's sort of an illusion that they're, the, the foreign artists are so huge here. It's just, it's more of a, a PR that like, if you're a UK band, it's really interesting to tell your UK and American fans that you're huge in Japan. That's a good story. Like, yeah, exactly. and you can, take these like videos of the like wild, crazy Beatlemania that happens there. And it makes it seem like you're the biggest thing in Japan, but they're really not. So that's your little uh, in industry secret there that, um, <laughs> you know, I definitely think there's a language barrier, obviously like, and uh, I think that cult there's a cultural difference that just doesn't, doesn't work. But I mean, I don't know if that's true anymore because the biggest band in the world at the moment, I think is still BTS and, and culturally there's not much in common, but there, there's something going on there. Um, baby metal was able to break down that barrier and, and yeah. baby metal charted pretty high in America and UK and Europe did all the big festivals. So yeah, I don't know. But 
I think it's really that uh, Americans like American artists or artists that sing in English and European artists like artists in their own country. It's they're closer to home is where, yeah. where artists tend to do the best. True. True. Actually. I asked some major Japanese, bands. I've worked with some major Japanese bands and for their management companies. And I've asked them like, what are your biggest markets? And they say by far Japan next is Southeast Asia, like uh, Singapore, Taiwan, Malaysia, Indonesia, those Japanese artists do huge in those countries, Korea, they do pretty well. Um, and then Europe and then America, which is really interesting to me. You, know, yeah. you would think America might be a little bit bigger than those, but no, it's the lower on the totem pole. Yeah. It's interesting, the whole flip around of it, you know, it's not what you'd expect at all. Very interesting. I'd love to actually dig a bit deeper into it and uh, find out a bit more. It's something that would really interest me now. But um, we'll... We'll get on to Band Builder Academy. And I have a scenario for you. Okay. Say I'm a new band, been out two, three years. We have a decent sized following. We can make all our own music at home. But how do we make a decent living at being a musician? How do we get to that next step to make a decent living? Okay. Yeah. So, um, that artist, by the way, if you're that artist, or let's say you're even not, you, you know, you have a, a moderate to small following, um, those are the artists that I love working with now. And that's what I've been doing for the last five years. But I think the, 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 the answer there is traffic and conversions and getting, um, the right type of traffic, not casting a wide net, trying to go for, millions of people and then getting them to check you out going to the areas that you're the artists that you want to like tour with the artists that you're looking to like um become mm -hmm. <laughs> look at how look at how where their fans are try to find out where their fans consume music read about the band or you know try to learn their team even like who who's their publicist and um who's their like who's their booking agent, who's their manager and look at who they work with and try to look at the network of where you fit in and build your team in the image of the bands that you want to be like the bands you want to be like, or the bands you want to be on tour with. Um, it's just each, each genre has its own like little communities and not just communities of fans, but communities of industry people that support those artists. So that's, that's a, a shortcut for you. Um, but there's, there's lots of steps along the way. The revenue is going to come not necessarily from streaming, but from your touring. Once touring comes back fully um, from your merchandise and your VIP packages, which going back to Japan really quick, something really interesting I learned about Japan that I had no idea. And, and, and Japanese artists have been hit harder during the pandemic because of this. They were relying on the revenue from signings, CD signings, like the big J-pop bands, yeah. they charge $150 for their concert, but then they charge $20 for an autograph or $25 for an autograph and $25 for the CD. So it's like $50 to buy the CD and get an autograph. So they're making huge revenue at these autograph signings at the venues. That was where a lot of their profit was going. Music sales were going through the record label publisher, then back to them. But the big money was from the concert revenue, and the autograph signings. And uh, I heard in China, 
because they don't have a good music economy for streaming and um, downloads and record sales, they make their money from their appearances, but tipping, like tipping has become a big thing. So I think this and and their social media platforms have tipping built in and, and ours are getting that way where there's lots of like, buy me a coffee tipping type software built into a lot of platforms. I think that's going to be more of a thing, but for musicians, it's building your own fan base, um, winning those fans over and getting the super fans into tickets, VIP packages, um, deluxe packaging and merchandise. Um, and then I would take a page out of the playbook of what they're doing over here and do those, you know, VIP meet and greets with signings, um, you probably can't command what the big J-pop stars can, but um, but th- there's a good market there. Um, and then, uh, you know, also, you know, just the, the tipping thing, if you can some, like somehow take advantage of that, um, that's, that's a good way to do it. Uh, and then, you know, like build a team because there's lots of money to be made from music licensing and, and sync for movie, television, video games. Um, all those type of licensing but um it's also different by genre there's lots of different and this people say there's like cheat codes for each genre and you need to learn where the money's being made in whatever genre of music you're making um yeah so and if you're not a touring music touring artist then you've got to get good at licensing and you know sync and, and and production music maybe those type of things yeah yeah i often think to myself you know the beatles the way they stop touring completely and just we're in the studio all the time no way would they be the richest musicians on the earth nowadays if they've done that you know that's true that's very true yeah and do bands nowadays can they make it without a label at all or at some stage do they need to get onto a label no i I think you can make it without a label and and there's there's um powerful management agencies that have their own like in-house labels or not label, but it's your, it's your, you own the master and you're your own record label with your, with your team. And because you can do distribution pretty easily, your distribution can compete with majors, but yeah, there's lots of tons of artists doing it. I mean, independence by percentage are 30% of the, of the overall pie major labels are the other 70% maybe, but of the 30%, probably 10% of those are totally un, like on small DIY or not, sorry, unsigned, not to a label. The other 20% of the revenue are independent labels, like smaller labels, not major labels. Maybe it's 15%. I don't know, but there's a good 10 to 15% of people that don't have a record label at all that are making up 15% of the revenue in the music business. That's, you know, that's pretty significant. And that number has been going up over the last 20 years or, you know, 15 years. So yes, you can do it. Um, a team helps, um, you know, it's, it's a, who, you know, business, it's a relationship business. So those relationships make things happen a lot better, but there's plenty of artists, whether they're, you know, performing artists or in the bedroom artists doing really good business all on their own without a record label. And those artists should definitely join band builder because my thing is teaching self-releasing independent artists to release their music in a way that's competitive with major labels. And that's where I come from with big independent label, major labels. And, you know, that's the plans that I lay out are competitive with those plans. Um, So that's, 
I would encourage anybody to say, yes, I can do it. Now, record labels um, do have value still. And I would say the value is their promotional pipelines. Now, a lot of things are driven by TikTok and Instagram and social media and YouTube these days. And you don't really need a record label to do that. But there is something to be said for having a global team um, that can plug you into like the radio pipelines, radio is still powerful, um, that, that can talk to the, uh, you know, Apples and the Spotify's and the Amazons and the Googles of the world and get in there and leverage and, and have those relationships. They also have the relationships at TikTok and at Spotify or, or sorry, at Facebook and Instagram and all, you know, Twitter, they have those relationships. Um, they have, um, commercial partners for brands. They have sync relationships. So there, there are these promotional pipelines and business pipelines that major, major labels do offer. And I think, you know, to use Adele for an example, she was on Excel recordings, an independent label in the UK um, for the, you know, the beginning of her career, the first album and part of the second album. Um, and then she licensed Excel licensed the record to RCA, a major label after that. And the main reason to do that was that global infrastructure. When you're the biggest artist in the world, you kind of need that global infrastructure to get those 2,500 people getting on the phone and getting everything to number one around the world and not leave any, any money on the table. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And first of all, I have to say it's called band builder, but I take it you don't have to just be a band. You can be solo and any genre as well is it yeah yeah that's purely i named it i named it that because i came from the band world i came from working with rock bands so um i i, t- I didn't really imagine that you know hip-hop artists and singer songwriters solo artists production music people making music for you know tv and video games and, and and advertisements i never thought those people would be you know coming to band builder but it turns out 50 percent of my members are actually either solo artists or non-performing artists or, you know, just in different genres than, you know, the bands are more like groups or singers or rappers or producers. Um, and then I have a lot of, you know, record labels and artist managers in the Academy as well. Yeah. Yeah. And when they sign up, they get access to a range of courses, everything they need to know to, to grow their band. I take they get full access to your expertise as well. They do. Yeah. So it's, it's 70, 80, 90 hours of video learning, video courses. Um, and it's not just like one course. There's, there's a bunch. Um, so it takes you a while to go through it. That's why it's like an Academy, not like a standalone course. Um, and you get access for the monthly price. You get access to all the courses at once and you can consume them at your own pace. Um, so you can consume the lessons and there's a roadmap that teaches you how to go through it in chronological order from just getting started and building a foundation and your branding all the way through your release planning and strategy, building, you know, social media and learning advertising and learning promotion and all of that stuff and then releasing a record. Um, so that's all just self-consumed. Um, there's video training and courses on like little one-off topics like music licensing or putting out cover songs, releasing cover songs, because I have that expertise, putting out all those Punk Goes cover songs. Mm. Um, and then you do have access to me, uh, the memberships right now at the time you're watching this or recording this, um, 
every membership gets a free 30 minute phone consultation with me. Oh. Um, and if you're nice to me, I'll extend that beyond 30 <laughs> minutes for you. But um, the, the artists, each artist gets my time on the phone initially. Um, and then I'm in the community answering questions all day long. And I give really long, like blog style, multi-paragraph answers and responses. And I'm doing a lot of the training from the questions that I get from my members in the community. Um, and I'm very responsive. Um, so yeah, I'm in there. That's all I do. I'm in there all day chatting up people in the community and, um, yeah. So, and, and then you get lots of tools in, in the Academy. So, um, I help you, there, there's a lot of like bad actors out on Google that are trying to sell the latest playlist promotion service or the latest PR or the latest tricks uh, in the music industry and the hacks and they're and it's hard to tell if they're a scam or not. So I have a document when you get in that you can see like, here's what you should be doing. Stay away from this stuff. Here's services that you should stay away from. These are the ones that are sort of good and, and qualified and, and I approve. Um, so it helps you weed that out. That's something everybody likes. And then there's, there's just tons of tools. Like I built tools for the Academy. I built this Spotify algorithm tool that pretty much lets you know where your internal chart position is within the Spotify algorithm. And you can see it for any artist. So you could go look at your favorite artists or artists that you want to go on tour with and study how they're working in the algorithm, what playlists they're getting on. And my algorithm tool helps you uncover those playlists and sort of follow the path upward in the algorithm. And, 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 and more importantly, stay away from the wrong types of playlists and fans that are going to skip your music. Um, because that's, that's one thing you'll learn is how to nurture the algorithm and how to keep away from, from bad algorithm actions. And I'm probably getting a little bit too boring and deep here, but <laughs> no, no. those are some things people really love about my Academy. The fact that they have access to me for questions they get really in-depth, long answers. Um, they have these tools that nobody else has. Um, they have analytics that you know. There's there's all sorts of cool things in there. Yeah, that they get free. That's uh, that's something very interesting. Actually, you said bad playlists. I assumed there was no such thing as a bad playlist because you know artists nowadays all they're getting told is get your music on a playlist. Get your music on a playlist. That's what you need to do. But there is there actually bad playlists? out there you know that you shouldn't be on most yeah if if you're an artist i would say there's probably 30 to 300 that small playlists that you need to be on or you want to be on that aren't going to get your music skipped right. and i'm talking like playlists that have between 100 followers and a million followers you know like there's probably only 30 to 300 in your genre that you want to be on then there's like user playlists that you and I make in our bedroom that have our favorite songs. Those are good, but I'm not talking about those. Um, talking about the ones that have a lot of followers. All the other ones are just going to get you skips. Right. And you might buy onto some generic playlist that gets you a hundred thousand streams. And you're like, Oh my God, I paid a thousand bucks and I got a hundred thousand streams. I'm big now. But what you don't realize is you might've got a hundred thousand streams but you got 90,000 skips. Uh, and when you get 90,000 skips, it tells Spotify and the algorithm that people hate your music. <laughs> the Spotify stops the algorithm. They stop showing your music to people and you've completely killed the organic algorithm. And there's no chance for you to, you know, I mean, 
after six months go by, nine months, maybe a year go by, you can clean up your algorithm and, and recover, but it, you're really setting yourself back. So get in Band Builder Academy, learn how to do the right things. And, um, you know, don't, don't, don't wing it. Don't mess around with your music career. You've spent a lot of money, a lot of time making your songs, paying the producers and writers, and you've, you've um, made music videos and content. You've spent all this time. Don't screw it up by just doing bad promotion. Yeah, yeah, some great advice there. And we actually have a, a special offer for the listeners. Yeah, it, you can join, you know, Brian will leave a link in the show, the show notes here with the link. Click that link. And it's also going to give you a, a 10% coupon. I think the word concerts, that's what we're doing, concerts. So just use the code concerts when you sign up and you'll get 10% off your lifetime of your membership every, every month you remember, or if you do the lifetime membership or uh, sorry, annual membership, you get 10% off of that as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. And thanks a million for, for putting that together. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Hope, hope to see some of you guys in there. And yeah. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of listeners that will uh, be very interested anyway. I know a lot are musicians themselves, so it'll definitely uh, pique their interest. We might as well get to the last couple of questions. I know it's getting late in Japan. That's <laughs> all right. I've been looking forward to it. I normally ask everybody this, and you can't get off the podcast until you answer it, I'm afraid. So if there was any performer or artist from history you could see for one night only in concert, who would it be? Uh, uh, what was I going to say? I thought about this. Uh, Led Zeppelin. Right. Because they, yeah, I didn't, never got to see them play. Not, not old enough. Um, and just, man, I mean, you can hear how amazing they would be live on those recordings. You could hear how insane it would be. So yes, Led Zeppelin, hundred percent. I don't even think there's a second close, a, a, <laughs> a second, uh, second one close to that. Yeah. Yeah. I love how back in the days when they would have been recording that, as you said, it sounds like they're live. You know, they were trying to emulate the live sound and it did it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, that analog sound, the live studio recordings, not much studio magic. I mean, they could cut and splice some things here, <laughs> punch in vocals here and there. But for the most part, you're hearing a lot of live takes. Yeah. yeah. All live takes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say they're probably, it's probably a mix between them and the Beatles are who I hear most on all the episodes I'm curious. oh so led zeppelin is kind of a common one does it come up it a lot it would be it would be yeah yeah but uh, that just says everything yeah i'm in the right zone there i, I mean just it would have blown my mind mm, yeah yeah definitely and if you had to spend 24 hours locked in a room with any artist or performer from history who would it be <laughs> uh, um yeah i, I mean I've spent I've spent a lot of time with musicians and big <laughs> musicians that I that I that I really look up to and all that and um, sometimes they blow you away sometimes they disappoint but I think Bruce Springsteen I think he wouldn't disappoint I think if I spent had to spend a whole day with him I'd just be a fanboy hanging out by, with him and just shadow him for a day that would be that would be my dream that would be amazing I don't know if I could talk to him I, I don't know if I could get any words out but. Yeah, I would love to just hang out with him for a day. That'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a really good pick. He's one of them people that 
even though like he's a superstar, he seems really down to earth and just like a, a really nice, cool guy. Yeah, totally. totally. Now, does he come up a lot? Has he come up? I, I want to say he's come up maybe two or three times. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so I'm not so unique. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, uh, we'll see what your next answer is. If there was a song that could appear on the soundtrack to your life, what would it be? Oh, tough, man. <laughs> I have to answer this one. I'm afraid um, so. Yeah. Okay. So once one song that's like kind of like a like my song. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, geez. I, I'm turning Japanese by the vapors. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a good um, one. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit serious because actually I don't really like that song, but um uh Jeez, maybe can, can I pick a few albums? Uh, basically, yep. the entire Fugazi discography, like that, is like the soundtrack to my life. Probably, I mean, the things they're singing about on those records, and, and if you haven't checked them out, check it out. It's probably not going to be, you know, it's it's an acquired taste. Like, but the things they're singing about there are so important, and and I could say they've shaped my life, you know, and probably led to where I am today. Like I said, getting into the music business because they had a record label, but it's really the things they're saying on their records. And they were, they were making their records in the eighties and nineties, but the things they're singing about are super relevant to today. Like the things that are going on in the world today, like so that their lyrics were, they're timeless and they were really prudent back then. And it tells as humans, we're not learning our lessons. We're not, we're not making the right decisions because they were singing about this stuff so long ago and it's a shame, but um, they're, they're a punk band. So you check them out if you like punk music. Um, and I don't know, I think that, that probably, if I could just pick an, pick some albums, I said all the Fugazi albums. I can't really <laughs> pick one song. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like they sum you up pretty well then. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And if I could figure out what, all the lyrics and they're saying and to that band Eastern youth in Japan, I, I would too. I haven't figured, I haven't transcribed them yet. But <laughs> if I have some interesting stuff to say. And the final one, is there something I should have asked you? Something you should ask me, huh? I don't know. Um, yeah, probably, probably. I'm sorry. No, I don't. I don't I, <laughs> I think we covered uh, covered a lot. Like, yeah, we talked about influences, and um, so and we t- we talked about like the concerts and stuff. No, I think I think we're good. Perfect, perfect, all done. So, listen, I've really enjoyed chatting to you now for the last hour and a half. I was really looking forward to this one, and it didn't disappoint. It was super interesting. Aside from the listeners, I really enjoyed it. So I know oh, they're good. going to love it. I did hear it. I hope I didn't get too long-winded or boring on anything, but no, no, uh, not at all. No, I was ex- I was excited about this. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify. And if you're interested in signing up the Band Builder Academy, use the link in the show notes below and enter the code Concerts, and you'll receive ten percent off. So until next time. Keep rocking. Hey. Hey, what are you guys still doing there? The show is over. It's over.
you can go home. Go on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here. Bye.